Welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. This is Jason, and today we have Jackie Fielder, who is running for California State Senate District 11, which happens to be my district. It covers San Francisco and a bit of San Mateo County, which is south of San Francisco. I'm glad that we got her as a guest because beyond the fact that she's a great guest to have, I thought it was a great supplement to my interview with Jennifer Friedenbach because a significant part of her platform is affordable housing and housing being a human right. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, you should go listen to my episode with Jennifer, who is the director of the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. Jackie's opponent, Scott Weiner, has taken the most money from the real estate lobby than anyone in the California legislature, and that's something that I personally have a really big problem with. Now, he is a progressive in his own right, but you have to be accountable to your constituents and not corporations, especially when there's an affordable housing crisis, even more so in the middle of a pandemic. You have to be an independent thinker who isn't influenced by money. Before running for office, Jackie has been an activist, really succeeding in moving policy. Some examples are her leadership on the No One H campaign in 2018 to defeat San Francisco Police Officers Association's dangerous use of force policy, stopping to loosen the restrictions on tasers. She also co-founded the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, fighting to open up a pathway to a public bank that can potentially invest in local communities and things we actually want our money to be put into instead of fossil fuels and private prisons, etc. I'm going to stop there. I could go on, but you probably want to hear Jackie now, so let's do that. Hey, Jackie, thank you for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So before we get into your Senate race uh, and your activism, can you tell us a bit about your personal background? Yeah, so I was born in Southern California, raised in Southern California, um, most of my life by a single mom. Um, and then I, I worked hard to get to Stanford, graduated with a degree in public policy and a master's in sociology. After graduation, I joined my relatives at Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. And then that pretty much launched me into my activism around police accountability and around uh, fossil fuel divestment, also dovetailing with the, the public bank efforts that are ongoing. And so I founded the San Francisco Public Bank Coalition, co-founded with an amazing group of people and organizers here in San Francisco, so that we could eventually take our billions of dollars in our city budget out of the hands of Wall Street and instead reinvest in our own public bank that's owned by the city. And that would finance things that we actually need, like affordable housing, renewable energy, small businesses, and public infrastructure. And of course, now I'm running for state senate. Uh, I'm, you know, a first-time candidate. I am, you know, I come from a, a background of organizing and a working-class background. 
all of the policies that are made at the state level deeply affect the people that I love, my friends, my family, that are all still in California and holding on for dear life, especially in this pandemic. So you've been an activist and you have been pretty successful at that, at moving policy. So why now are you running for Senate and what does being a politician mean to you? Yeah, it certainly was not a plan for me to run this this campaign. Uh, it's quite a leap to make. And it was, you know, in November of last year, 2019, when I realized that, you know, we can't wait any longer. My mom was served a notice from her corporate landlord down in Southern California. She lives in a retirement community of mobile homes. And her corporate landlord said, we're going to raise the rent by 35% starting January 1st of 2020. Um, Long story short, the corporate landlord uh, eventually kind of bullied the residents into agreeing to a long-term rent hike over four years. Um, The reason that they did this, though, was because there is a state policy that almost put mobile homes under rent control, and they probably got scared. Um, In summary, I just felt like the encroaching housing affordability crisis is one that can no longer be entrusted to politicians that are bankrolled by the real estate interests. I, it's very uncommon for a state level candidate to swear off contributions from the real estate lobby, uh, charter school lobby, law enforcement unions, you know, big tech companies, um, you name it, any interest that's out there, any, any industry that, that, you know, thrives off of profits at the expense of workers and at the expense of our environment. Um, they are pouring millions of dollars into state-level races. And I understood that going back to my, my time as a police accountability activist and seeing the flow of money from law enforcement unions to even the most progressive state legislators. And so for me, it was about realizing that we, we can't wait any longer for the right people to come along. There's a national movement of people, you know, shooting for the stars and in never having, uh, you know, had a day in public office, but have still shown what a real working class representative can do for the people. And it's not about any one person, you know, my name is on the ballot, but we have a real opportunity here in District 11, all of San Francisco, Daly City, Colma, parts of South San Francisco, to really change the history and the, the future of of California politics and even West Coast politics. Um, It's so exciting to see, you know, 900 volunteers sign up over the course of the past half year, even in the the coronavirus pandemic, um, making calls to 4,000, 5,000 households every single week. Um, And we got 33% of the vote in the primary in March, which was astounding considering we only had 50 really 50 days to talk to people and voters on the ground. And so in a district as large as this, that amounts to 99,000 votes. And we're, we're keeping our eyes on November with just, you know, less than 80 days until ballots drop now. 
So you went into detail about this a bit, but it's something that's been very important to me when thinking about politics, and that's lobbying. Um, to me, this is the root of most, if not all, of the problems that we have. And you know, when our elected officials are being held accountable to their large donors, their corporate donors, as opposed to their constituents. Um, it, I saw in 2019, the total lobbying spending amounted to 3.47 billion US dollars. So for you, as a Senate candidate, why is it really important to not take money from, let's say, real estate lobbies? And uh, like, and also how big um, and important has lobbying been in California politics? Oh, it's been huge. And the unfortunate part is maybe you can get away with being a progressive legislator, you know, for a few things, but you can't, you can't be 100% reliable. There's always going to be some kind of uh, compromise you'll make. You know, my opponent is the most real estate backed politician in California, uh, in the California legislature. Uh you know, he's had an entire career of siding with the real estate lobby, the big landlord lobby. Um, he's also accepted contributions from the California Charter School Association. Uh, and these are really, really scary encroachments on what I see as basic human necessities. They're interested in privatizing shelter. They're interested in privatizing education, both things that should be guaranteed to every single human being as part of their rights to a dignified life. And he has, you know, been good on some issues. I agree with him around, you know, legalizing public housing or, um, you know, municipalizing uh, the, the Pacific Gas and Electric company, utility but you can't be good on just a couple things and then be horrible on the rest. One of his biggest and most controversial bills has been this bill called SB 50. Um, depending on who you talk to, they love it or hate it. I opposed it from the stance of displacement and a lacking in affordability requirements, but also tenant protections. The, the kind of guardrails around tenant protections in that bill uh, pretty much like every single other bill in the California legislature, just has no enforcement mechanism whatsoever. So as we're seeing even right now in the pandemic, um, you know, he he put up this bill to protect small businesses, originally all small businesses, from getting evicted, and then got pushed back from the landlord lobby. And so he compromised and said, well, let's just limit it to restaurants and cafes and then compromise more, and then eventually it died. Like we can't be, we can't be negotiating off um, working class people's protections just because these powerful interests are trying to strong on us. We need someone who can stand up to corporations, to big tech, to uh, the California Association of Realtors, California Apartment Association, and so many other interests that just swarm Sacramento with their lobbyists. Um, just last month, I challenged him to donate the more than $75,000 he has received directly from law enforcement associations up and down the state since 2015, his first state Senate, state Senate campaign. 
And he's somewhat conceited. He said that he would donate about a third from his um, re-election campaign. So they're still not standing two thirds that he's not going to donate back. But in any case, that's something that I've been wanting to do for a long time is get law enforcement union money out of state level politics. Uh, and it has a real effect on the legislation that comes out of the legislature. You know, it's so hard to keep up with even federal politics and, and especially state level politics. But for example, last year, when they were passing this stricter use of force policy and requiring more training of police officers, the entire law enforcement association lobby, and there are dozens of groups that comprise it, um, they lobbied all the legislators to unanimously pass a complementary bill that would give them way more funding. And as we're seeing now, uh, the police don't need more funding. They know how to squander that very quickly, uh, using, using it on militarized law enforcement and, you know, gosh, in LA, like a Lamborghini um, vehicle for LAPD. Uh, here in San Francisco, we have a $2 million horse brigade, while, you know, free youth muni would cost the same amount. And so they don't need more money. They, they need actually uh, less money, and we need to reinvest in, in programs and institutions that actually provide stability for our communities, especially black and brown communities. And that would look like reinvesting in healthcare. Imagine a single payer healthcare system, especially at a time when millions of Americans are losing their healthcare. Imagine reinvesting in public education. California is among the bottom in the nation still before coronavirus uh, for per student spending. We also have the fifth largest economy in the world if we were our own country, yet we rival Florida and Louisiana for having the highest poverty rate in the nation. And so there's a severe wealth inequality problem that legislators only skirt around the edges here and there, only when there's immense pressure. Gosh, even it, it has to take a pandemic for a lot of them to consider even taxing billionaires. Um, I don't know a single legislator who has come behind the, the rallying cry for defunding the police, canceling rent, canceling mortgages. They won't even introduce a bill to, to try that. While New York legislators, where we have State Senator Juliet Salazar, an amazing Democratic Socialist, it has truly inspired my own campaign and candidacy, uh, you know, and then she's going to be joined by four other socialists, knock on wood, after their ballots are counted uh, this month. But they've considered already four to six proposals to cancel rent or provide rent relief, all of varying degrees. And we just we can't even consider it here in California because the interests have such a chokehold on our democracy. And wouldn't you say that there's a bit of hypocrisy in that, especially because when you think about California, you think of not just Cal when you think of California, you, th you think of one of the most progressive states. When you think about the Bay Area, you think of one of the most progressive cities in this country, if not the world. Absolutely. And working class people, uh, black, indigenous people of color who have lived here a long time understand that we are often you know, an afterthought for politicians. Um, they, they come in and they take their pictures and then they leave and that's it. They don't understand the sustained struggle to survive in this state. 
their family members are are not dealing with the same issues of losing wealth, being continuous uh, indentured servitude because of college debt, because of medical debt. Um, and it's really just a grind to, to even get out of bed in the morning, especially in a pandemic. Um, you know, and our problems here in the district specifically, they can go back far, far, far um, into the past, but especially the, the era around redevelopment where, uh, you know, public housing projects were severely disinvested from at the federal level, were not saved by the state or even the, the local municipal housing authorities. And so what you have was downtown business interests wanting to, you know, conduct urban renewal, which, you know, James Baldwin so poignantly pointed out that this meant the removal of Black people, of poor Black people from places like the Fillmore. Um, and they promised those communities that they would get new housing in the same place, yet never fulfilled those promises. And no one was on their case about it. I mean, of course, the residents themselves were, but no one with authority was on their case about it. And so people got displaced way across the Bay, sometimes even out of state. And we never really recovered from that. That's why San Francisco has declined, like our black population has declined from 13% to just 3%. And, you know, similar story for Latinos and working class East Asians and Southeast Asians and Filipinos and Pacific Islanders. It's really just, it's, it's scary how much this place has become um, so much a playground for, for transitioning uh, young professionals who often work in tech. And, you know, a lot of these people are my classmates that I went to Stanford with. But, you know, it's, it's not about uh, newcomers and whatnot. San Francisco has always been a place for new people, especially queer people, uh, and, and people of color, but it's about who is actually here to give back to the community. There are so many interests in the city, as we know, that want to extract as much as they can from this place without, with giving as little back. And I think that that's definitely played out in politics. Um, and it's time, you know, after seeing a Democratic Socialist get elected to our Board of Supervisors, after seeing an open decarceration advocate and public defender get elected as district attorney, I'm talking about Dean Preston and Chase Boudin, respectively, it was really inspiring to see. And it got me excited and hopeful for once about the direction of the only place that I've been able to call home as a young queer women of color as an organizer. And I really think that California is primed for a political revolution. And so you mentioned these, these recently elected officials who are democratic socialists, uh, which is how you identify your politics. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, to me, it's about structuring the economy in a way where workers have uh, much more ownership and control of the products and labor and capital that, that they use to, you know, generate wealth and 
and generate services. So it also means in, in the grander scheme of things, um, changing the material circumstances of everyday people so that all people have the ability to actualize their own lives. And what I mean by that is, does every single person in this district, in this society, have what they need to take care of themselves, to just have the basics covered so that they can become whoever they want? Do they have uh, single-payer health care? Do they have free quality public education? Do they have, um, you know, affordable guaranteed right to a home where they're not paying more than 30% of their income for? Um, do they have the, the freedom to move around? And I don't mean just transportation and buses and trains, but I mean, are they uh, free from surveillance? Are they free from over-policing? Um, are there services that are quality enough to help them heal generational trauma, substance abuse issues, and, and other forms of trauma? Um, and I just want a society where, you know, everyone, just as it was before settler colonialism, uh, everyone was housed, everyone had the medicine that they needed, everyone was a part of society, and and had what they needed. So we as Americans have been conditioned to reject candidates that are democratic socialists simply because of how they identify politically. So what do people get wrong? How do you convince them that your ideas are really trying to help all Americans and not just send people to the gulag and purge everyone in the California legislature? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of like that saying around billionaires shouldn't exist. It's not that those people should not exist. It's that there should not be such an immense stratification of wealth and concentration of wealth in the hands of a select few at the expense of, you know, half of the human population. And so we're talking about extreme inequality. There are 175 billionaires in the state of California whose wealth amounts to something like $700 billion. And you know, much for one single person, one single working class person in this district to, to just keep their head above water with, with a you know $35,000 salary from working service industry jobs um, or domestic working or you know other, other jobs. But um, it's also, it's also that, you know, we have to recognize at some point if we're okay with this setup. Can, can you look around society today and say that Jeff Bezos getting, you know, $25 billion more in wealth in a single day is okay while millions of parents are leaving their children at home because they can't afford to not work? to not pay rent, to not put food on the table, leaving kids at home without supervision, without distance learning that's adequate, either because they don't have access to a laptop or Wi-Fi or what have you, um, and leaving those kids in, in a very traumatic time, obviously. And so that's what keeps me up at night. We really need to have a more equitable tax structure in the state of California to allow for 
for funds to be redistributed for things like affordable housing, especially for the homeless. As we all know, California is experiencing a homelessness problem. And this is happening in, in a state with uh, one of the, the highest concentration of billionaires in the world. So I'd like to go back and dig into the causes that you have been fighting for over the previous years. So you say that you really kind of got your start in activism um, at the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. Yeah, so my my grandparents, uh, the way that I ended up as a Native American in Southern California, who's also a Latina, proud Latina, um, is... My mom was born and raised in South Central LA, and then my father was born and raised, uh, well, was raised in Arizona, but it was because both my grandparents were displaced from their home reservations in North and South Dakota, displaced and also relocated. You know, the federal government had programs back in, you know, the mid uh, 20th century that tried to incentivize Indian people to come off the reservation and come be a part of American culture and assimilate. And my grandparents were a part of that as well. My grandmother grew up on a reservation in the northwest corner of North Dakota. It's called Fort Berthold. My grandfather grew up uh, several hundred miles down south in South Dakota on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. And my grandmother was displaced by the Army Corps of Engineers uh, back in the 50s when they built the Garrison Dam and this flooded her hometown of Elbow Woods. Um, and then fast forward to, you know, 2014 to 2016, the same Army Corps of Engineers is approving this gigantic multi-billion dollar oil pipeline to go through the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And this was after the predominantly white town of Bismarck had raised objections to the pipeline going through their town and their source of fresh water, the Missouri River up there. Instead, the company moved it down south to some of the most disenfranchised, impoverished corners of our entire country. And they did that knowing that the tribe had very little means to put up a fight. Little did they know that we have a long history of indigenous resistance uh, of course, most recently going back to the American Indian Movement in the 1970s. And we saw the biggest pan-Indian movement since the 70s. More than 100,000 people, it's estimated, descended on Sanding Rock uh, from the time of the camps that started in April 2016 to the end in March of 2017. I, I hopped in in December of 2016 after I'd seen, you know, people that were my relatives getting sprayed down with water cannons in sub-freezing temperatures, uh, having German shepherds set on them to pierce their flesh um, in 2016 in defense of a multi-billion dollar oil company with the help of the federal government, with the help of North Dakota law enforcement and Morton County sheriffs. And this was after I'd already been politicized by the Black Lives Matter movement and was studying kind of on my own just the, the police policies and police um, murders of unarmed Black people and trying to understand, you know, what my role is. And 
you know, through that, the issue of police funds became very personal. But at the same time, I wanted to, I wanted to understand the connection of money. And I wanted to understand where the flows of money are coming from as, as it pertains to this particular pipeline. And at that time, there was a graphic that Dr. Hugh McMillan made showing the dozens of banks that had contributed uh, financing to this project that amounted in the several billions of dollars. And, you know, there is a, a burgeoning hyper-local movement in Seattle led by Matt Remley and Rachel Heaton, two amazing indigenous organizers, and now my longtime friends and family. They were starting to pressure the Seattle City Council to divest their city monies from these banks. And so I knew that I wanted to do the same here in San Francisco and got to work organizing the, the at that point it was the San Francisco defund Apple coalition. And, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know very much about how to move legislation, but we learned very quickly. And it turns out it's, you know, it's much harder to take out $6 billion or however many billions of dollars from wall street banks, because there is no proper alternative. There, there is one, one possibility that um, that exists in in the whole continental United States, and that's the Bank of North Dakota. We tried to see if we could do credit unions or smaller banks, but but our budget is just so massive that those banks could not handle it. And so the real alternative for us was going to be a public bank like that of North Dakota, which has been around since 1919. Long story short. Fast forward to 2019, we lobby in the capital of the state, Sacramento, to pass public bank bill AB 857, which creates a pathway for, you know, local government agencies to create their own public banks. And we went toe to toe with the most powerful lobby in the world, uh, the Wall Street bank lobbyists, and we won. We won as a grassroots, all volunteer uh, California Public Banking Alliance, and you know, special shout out to Trinity Tran of Public Bank LA for spearheading that, and so many other people that worked on that uh, effort is truly a team effort. But um, this year, we're also we also just introduced a bill, uh, AB three one zero, to start a state bank, and the hope is that the state bank could in the future support a regional system of public banks here in California so that we can actually cut the costs of building affordable housing, of implementing renewable energy projects, of keeping small businesses afloat and open, um, and building public infrastructure. A third of the cost of pretty much everything that you and I buy is interest, and public banks could help cut that down severely simply because they do not have the, the motive of maximizing shareholder profits. They exist to serve the public and any profits that they would gain, we, the public, would actually uh, be able to benefit from. So the money for this bank is coming from taxes, correct? The money for this bank, we need to capitalize it. And that's going to be a big um step wherever that happens. And that's what this particular bill, the state bill right now is focused on. 
um, is capitalizing a state bank by simply repurposing funds that already are sitting there. They're just sitting there in Wall Street banks. Okay. And isn't it a win-win, you know, doubling the impact by investing in our communities and our planet and in the things that we actually want to invest in? That's exactly it. And it keeps, it keeps uh, money circulating locally here and it just it stimulates our economy locally so you are 25 years old and i want to talk about that because it's something that i've been thinking about a lot does age really matter what do you say to someone who might say you lack political experience because i personally um, you know as i said i've been thinking about it and I've met 17 to 18-year-olds with more maturity, integrity, respect, and a better work ethic than most adults that I've met in my entire life. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, it matters to some extent, but obviously not in the way that I think a lot of people uh, understand. I I don't, it's funny, I don't get that question a lot. Um, I mainly get that from I don't know, political insiders who are so seeing um, people, you know, double my age, my opponent is double my age, um, you know, take kind of kind of take the long route and the safe route and, you know, work their way up and not knocking that path. But, you know, I, I think that I've had enough um experience pushing legislation locally and at the state level to understand more or less how that world works. It, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you have so much experience and you're still just trimming around the edges of the most, the boldest changes that we need, especially in this moment, like, what are you doing? What was that all for? And I just don't think that we have time to wait. I think um, I think there is such a thing as being too young, especially when it comes to you know being able to respond to I don't know intense interpersonal emotional uh, events. I think it's important to navigate that with um, with a lot of intention, especially you know relationships and politics. But I also think that you know at this point it's all about what do voters want. And at the end of the day, that's what matters to me. It, it doesn't matter to me what the political insiders think, because as we know, and we have seen over and over again these past few years, their, their projections, their predictions about who's going to win, who's viable and whatnot, those are just getting blown out of the water every single day. And so I, I am excited and, and, and so grateful that so many people would be drawn to this movement um, either despite my age or because of it. But um, at the end of the day, what matters is is who is going to represent working class people the best. And that's that's not my opponent. So my last question is, if you could give advice to someone who really wants to make a positive impact on their community or the world at large, but doesn't know where to start, what would you tell them? I would say get involved with social justice causes, um, whether it's affordable housing, criminal justice, public banking, uh, tenants' rights, advocacy, uh, labor organizing and union organizing, uh, you know, 
uh, victims' rights, uh, decarceration, uh, community safety, youth advocacy, environmental justice, and climate justice. Like, building relationships with people who experience the brunt of our society's biggest challenges is the only way, really, to to understand what our purpose is here. And I think that with with great privileges, you know, I was educated at Stanford. I I have uh, that to always lean back on, and I have an amazing support system of family and friends. To those that have those kinds of privileges and and don't have to worry about you know making it to the next day, I think that's a reason to to give back. And and I think that we need we need more <laughs> probably what conservatives call social justice warriors. Um, you know maybe politics is in that that realm, but I I wouldn't consider it the first and most important field, ironically, even I can say that as a candidate, you know, for me, my work as an organizer will always be, always be there. And it's an integral part of my life. And, and that's only possible because of the people around me that really ground me in, in what's important. And so I'm, I'm most proud of that work. And I'm most proud of the relationships that I've built. And, and building that community is really an essential part of finding your place in the world. And so I would focus on that. Absolutely. And if people want to learn more and support, where can they go? Um, JackieForsenic.com. We also are taking, you know, volunteers, but we're also an immensely grassroots campaign. Uh, 2,000 individual donors, 90% of our contributions are $100 or less. Meanwhile, my opponent's average contribution is approximately $1,000. <laughs> this, uh, this race is really expensive, but we only need to raise as much as, as we need to run a good campaign. And with your help, whether that's calling voters or putting literature on their doors or your $5 contribution, all of it will take us to victory in November and hopefully change the course of California politics for the working people. Great. Well, best of luck. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Bold Moves Only podcast. Thank you so much, Jason. Take care. Okay, thank you to Jackie and to all of you for listening. If you have not done so, go register to vote. Find out more about the candidates representing you. Donate. Volunteer. This is how we make change happen. There is no more time left to be idle and wait for things to happen. The time is now. So let's go to work and let's be bold.